So, as Jesse said, we're dealing with the rich young ruler. No surprise here, a pretty familiar story and account to many of us. Uh, and as Jesse said, I told him that he, he gave me my introduction earlier in the week. So, when we were talking about this, this is the guy that people want to be. He's wealthy, he's influential, he's confident, he's morally upright, and he runs to Jesus, literally. Um, probably the guy that a lot of single young women would want to meet, this guy on the outside who's got it all going for him. The guy that every pastor wants in his congregation, he's going to be a great tither. But you can't judge a book solely by his cover. And Jesus goes under the surface to this man's heart. And what he's going to do this morning is expose the tendencies that we all have. So we'll see that Entering the kingdom of God is not a matter of deeds and external obedience, but devotion and internal obedience of the heart. And the kingdom of God comes with great difficulty and cost to our flesh. And as this man confronts his flesh, I want us to confront ours as well this morning. So without further ado, let's dive right into our passage. Mark chapter 10, picking up in verse 17. And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up, to, ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Let's pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, these are heavy words. Words that are simple to speak, but so hard to grasp. Lord, every person in this room has things that grip our heart. Desires of the flesh that compete with eternal riches. Things that we find our value in, that we seek, that steal our heart away from you. Lord, I pray that you root those out and expose them this morning. That you make them a bitter taste in our mouth. That we would be miserable in anything that we take pleasure in that does not glorify you. Lord, that we would not be sorrowful like the rich young ruler at the loss of the things of this world. That we might be joyful 
that we might all lose it all for the sake of Christ and be counted worthy to bear His name. Lord, how humbling it is to read a text like this in light of our own hearts. May we not just read a story about a man, but read lessons that are about us. That we might leave all to follow Christ. That we might gain Christ in life everlasting. That He would be enough for us. That we would leave all behind for Him because He is worthy and He is worth it. In His name we pray. Amen. So like I said, uh, there's a lot going on in this, this passage but many of you may be familiar with it, so I want to deal with the very human element here. And we're going to do a lot of heart examination in this. And so, the first paragraph is really driven by the actions of this man. And there's a couple of lessons we can pull from that. And the second longer paragraph deals with Jesus teaching His disciples lessons from what they just witnessed. And we're going to look at those as well. So I want to, I want to dive right in. We call this man, the rich young ruler, because when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, we learn that he is rich, that he is young, and he's a ruler, uh, and you need Matthew and Luke to know that as well. And so this is a man who in his day, we don't know what he ruled, but he had authority. We don't know how he made his money, but he had money, and he was still young, and he was zealous. How do we know that he was zealous? Because look at the details right away. And as he Jesus was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him. So he runs, so he's a zealous, excited man, and he kneels before Jesus. He, he honors him. He recognizes that Jesus is greater than himself, and he falls down before him. So far, so good. Everything with this man seems ideal, and it's going to kind of continue that way. Because he continues to impress. He asks a great question, probably the greatest question anyone can answer. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Not only does he run after Jesus, seek out Jesus, fall before him, but he asks about things that matter for eternity. His disciples, still up to this point, are concerned with the temporal. Most people miss the point of Jesus' teaching. Jesus uses earthly examples to point to heavenly realities. He uses shadows and types to point to the things that do not pass away. And this man seeks for things that do not pass away. Great question. But did you notice the way he asks it? He asks it in a very human way. Thank you, George. Mouth it along right before I said it. What must I do? Isn't this our tendency? What must I do? Hey, I want eternity. I want, I want you. What do I bring to the table? What's my role in this? And something else he says. Still, great question. He's, he, he's human. We'll grant him that. He comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher. Simple compliment. Jesus could have just let it slide without addressing it. But why does he need to address it? First, he does not answer his question if you notice. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Wait, what? I, Jesus, here's your opportunity. You've been trying to tell people about eternal life since the beginning of Mark. You're going to address the word good? Why? Because Jesus knows the better question he should be asking. He knows what's underneath it. To understand eternity, you must understand goodness. Let's start there. He must challenge his concept of goodness. Jesus doesn't deny that he's a good teacher. 
But he wants to make sure this man understands it. He doesn't say, I'm not a good teacher. He says, why? Why do you call me good teacher? He considers Jesus good, but as we're going to see, he considers himself good. So before this man can understand eternal life, he must understand himself rightly before God. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This man must first realize there's only one good. And for you to understand eternal life, you must understand it is by his standard, his perfection. Nothing on earth can measure goodness. It must be according to the perfect character of a holy God. So before we go any further, we must have... Why did the lights dim? That was weird. I think the light bulb went out. Uh, We must have a... a, That was not for dramatic pause or anything. (laughs) I hate that stuff. Um, We must have a biblical view of goodness. We must understand goodness according to the, the Bible standards, not the world standards. Now, of course, Jesus was in a very different time, and this man was in a very different time, but in our context, we live in a time of subjective morality. Goodness is according to my own standard, and I consider this good, so this is everyone else's good. Here's my standard, and usually goodness is, is our own standard. Well, goodness is just far enough, I set the bar just high enough so I can reach it, but yet yeah, just high enough where no one else can. We have to be careful that we see goodness as the Bible sees goodness. Here is lesson number one. There's going to be four of them this morning. These are all going to be simple. Any child in here, any child next door can learn these four lessons. Number one, only God is good. Only God is good. And if you doubt that, if you trust in your own goodness, turn with me to Romans 3. A lot of you know where I'm going. We need to hear this. And people who try to accuse Paul of bringing in the idea of total depravity and, and, um, and doing something new, he's just quoting Psalm 14 here. So when he talks about the gospel in Romans chapter 1, it is the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. But the Greeks are wicked, the Jews are wicked. And if you think, Jew, you have any advantage, look at verse 9 of Romans 3. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Anyone else feeling good after reading that? So it's interesting. We had a guy visit our church a couple years ago and our reading that morning was Psalm 14. And this was quoted. And he told me, he, as soon as he heard the words that no one is good, no one seeks after God, he wanted to walk out right then. He was so indignant. He's an atheist. Still is an atheist. That as far as I know of, I'm still praying for him. But he wanted to walk out right then. Because those words attack our flesh like nothing else. Because if you can't stand on your own goodness, you have nothing. And that's the point. It should make us so uncomfortable in our flesh that we have nothing good. That there is no choice but to fall on our knees and cry out for mercy from a holy and righteous God. This is where Jesus goes. He must attack the very foundation of his own self-righteousness. And then he's going to 
get at the content of his own self-righteousness. Picking up in the next verse, 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Okay, you think you know goodness. You know the standard of goodness. You know the law. You should. I'm assuming this guy is a Jew. Jesus begins with listing the commandments so that he might gauge the measure of goodness and get this man to compare himself to the standard of goodness. And this is a helpful practice. So Jesus is bringing to mind these commandments, but did you notice which ones these are? These are the commandments on the vertical plane. Your actions toward others. Your actions toward your neighbor. And we're going to see in a moment with regards to these, he feels pretty confident. He says to him, teacher, and he learns. Before he says good teacher, all right, mental note, teacher. Does not say good this time. All these I have kept from my youth. He's pretty confident, especially from a young man. Yeah, I love when, when young guys are like, oh, I did that when I was a kid. You mean like three years ago? I've been doing those since I was young. I, I, I have all those in the bag. I've done these my whole life. Notice, still the emphasis is on his effort. What must I do? All these I have done. All these commandments. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen. I haven't bearing false witness. I honor my parents. He probably wasn't there for the Sermon on the Mount. So let's you know, give him that credit. So far, so good, right? This, this, this pious man, he's impressive. But what's missing? The vertical plane. The commandments that begin with loving God, having nothing else before Him. No idols, no graven images, honoring His name, honoring the day that He set apart. So let's not be too harsh on this man just yet. Because the teachings of the rabbis during his time actually taught and expected that you could keep the law perfectly. And the rabbis would argue that some did. So he was not the first one to say this. He's not the only one to say this. So he was right in line with the teaching of his time because he had not literally murdered and not literally stolen and had not literally committed adultery. He may have done all these things externally. He thought he had kept the law perfectly. How many stand before Jesus as confident as this man? Sure, I've never killed anybody. Not as bad as Hitler or fill in the blank. How many people stand on their own righteousness and their own goodness? How many people think that they live up to the law? How many people by the content of their own actions justify themselves? Some of you are sitting here this morning doing that. You do not think you're as bad as you really are. That's why the story of this man is so important. And as always, it is fascinating how Jesus responds to him. There are many fascinating things about verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. I, wanna, I want that to be a sermon in itself. There's so much there. Um, but a few things I want you to notice. First off, Jesus doesn't challenge his self-assessment. That would be my first response. Really, what? You've kept them all? Let me tell you what I told them a couple years ago. When I tell them that you have lust in your heart, and you've committed adultery. If you hate your brother in your heart, you've, you've committed murder. This would have been a perfect time to reiterate the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus lets him have that. First, just in another way, Jesus is so much more patient and gracious than I am. Number two, praise the Lord. Number two, Jesus looks on him intently and loves him. This, if you ask me why Jesus loves him here. Why this is mentioned here. This is the only time Mark mentions that Jesus loves someone. 
Why in this particular instance? I have no idea. But what is startling is that this self-righteous, self-confident, egotistical rich man stands before Jesus and tells him how good he is, and he loves him. Praise God for the love of Jesus. Praise God that he loves wicked, selfish, egotistical people like us. Many people try to read into this and try to figure out this man's salvation, and I'm not going to do that. That is beyond my pay grade, but we should just be amazed at the love of Jesus. And then he says something that is very telling. You only lack one thing. So does Jesus concede that he's kept the law? These are the questions that are going through my mind. Maybe the man's assessment was, was correct. Maybe he had kept all those laws. Let's just give him that. Let's say, okay, you have kept all of these laws, but you lack one thing. What does he lack? Jesus didn't have to mention covenant. He has nothing to covet. He's got all he needs. He lacks nothing in terms of material goods. He lacks nothing in terms of external moral qualities. To the average eye, he lacks nothing. But Jesus sees he lacks one thing. In his own goodness, he doesn't realize the hold on him that his possessions have. In his own goodness, he doesn't realize that true his comfort is really in his possessions. In his own goodness, he doesn't realize he's breaking the second commandment. And the first. In his own goodness, he doesn't realize that he's placing heavenly uh, heavenly rewards secondary to earthly. He is lifting up earthly rewards. The most loving thing that Jesus can do in this moment is to challenge his heart to be free of encumbrances. Anything that is holding his heart, that is, that is stopping him from being devoted to Christ, he politely and gently attacks it. That this man be devoted to Jesus alone. You lack one thing. You must unhitch your heart from what enslaves it. You must die to anything else that gives you comfort and security apart from me. And the commands here are very telling. Five commands. Go, sell, and give are the first three. This is what conversion looks like. Go, sell, and give. Repent of anything else that has your heart. Turn from it. Get rid of it. And give. Give it away. Show that it has no hold over you. And the last two, come and follow me. Repent and believe. Leave behind everything that has your flesh and come after me. Show me that I am more valuable than any of your possessions. Jesus supplants obedience to the law with following him. You kept the law, great. Show me how much more important I am. Because the whole purpose of the law is to show us our need for Christ. And to point us to him, not to find our righteousness in it. One thing you lack, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. If he is truly seeking eternal life, these are beautiful words. That's it? Get rid of my stuff for you? Done. But how does this man respond? Disheartened. He is disheartened because his heart is in love with his stuff. He is disheartened because there's a very short string between his heart and his wallet. And one can't go without the other. He is disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Eternal life sounds great until it means it costs you your stuff. In that moment, he realized where his comfort lied. 
and where his identity is. I thought about how great a contrast this was to the children that we saw last week. They have nothing to offer on their own. Like, you remember in um, Monopoly, you got to pay the poor tax. You know, he like pulls his little pockets out. Like, hey, I've you know, got, no, got no money. Like, that's the beauty of you. Must come to him like a child. Nothing to offer. Because this man has loads. And it loaded him down. Also made me think about our Hebrew study on Wednesday in 1034 where the disciples are, they are persecuted. And they are afflicted. And when people came and robbed them because they followed Christ, they were joyful. Who does that? People who have eternal treasure. My favorite comment from the night, um, Jared said that, he said, well, it really shows us where our home is. If you come to my house and steal my TV, I'm going to be upset. But, it's, but if it's not really my home, I'm not that upset. Because you can't steal what belongs in my eternal home. Amen to that. We should be joyful. When the things of this world that get in the way of our love for Christ are taken from us. Lesson number two. You cannot love the things of the world and Jesus. You can't do it. Don't believe me. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You must serve one or the other. You can only serve one or the other. Romans is helpful here again. Looking at Romans chapter 14. The context of Romans 14 is dealing with immature believers and mature believers and how we should deal with one another, not judging on superficial things. Verse 17. So in in that context, but this is helpful. This man says, how must I inherit eternal life? Jesus is talking about entering the kingdom of God in our next paragraph. And Paul explains here, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, not a matter of earthly things. Earthly things do not change or direct or affect eternal things. But it is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18, though. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. You cannot serve two masters. The question that this man is asking, what must I do? Serve Christ. Then you will be approved by God. All of your keeping of the law and good works in your own eyes will not make you approvable by God. And if you are approved by God, what can man do to you? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Serve Christ. Follow me. This is what he lacked. Some have used the rich young ruler. Legalists love this, this passage. Um, to say that Christians should never own anything. Christians should not be rich. And that the, the point of this story is just to get rid of all your stuff. And then you'll be able to follow Jesus. Is that really the point? No, that's not really the point. You can get rid of all your stuff and still have a hard and hardened heart. That is not the point. For the Christian, you can own things. There is very often a time of God promises to reward your labor, and He gives good things. He's a good Father. You can own things, but they cannot own you. That is the difference. You can own things, but they cannot own you. This man, his things owned him. He was a slave to them and didn't even realize it. So as you think this morning, if Jesus asked you, could you give it all up? If Jesus said, not Pastor Tim said, sell all your stuff and give to the poor. If Jesus says, sell it all, give it up and follow me. Could you? Would you? 
Some of you are thinking, well, I don't really have much. That's kind of easy. Well, kind of proves Jesus' next point. But if your things own you, sell them. Like a few weeks ago, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. If anything in your life causes you to sin, i.e., heart be drawn away from Christ, get rid of it. You are better off in a box under a bridge than with all your stuff in hell. And that's why, as we transition into this second section, Jesus looks around and said to them, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, how difficult. Now, I want to stop all of you who are thinking, but wait, what happened to him? What happened to his stuff? Did he give it up? Did he come after Christ? Did he, did he, did he, did he repent? Did he, did he love his stuff? Where did he go? What happened to him? We want the moral of the story. We want the end. And if it was important, Mark would have given it to us. But he didn't. Because that's not the point. The point is not what that man did. The point is, how will the disciples respond to what that man did? What will they learn from what that man did? And what will we learn? How will we respond when asked the same question? That is the point. So before we go any further, it is difficult. Entering the kingdom of God is difficult, especially in America. Because the poorest among you is richer than almost everyone throughout history. And it is so easy for our stuff to have our hearts. How difficult it is for those who have wealth. That's not just for the millionaires and billionaires. If you've got more than one outfit... You're richer than most people on the planet. If you eat three meals a day, you're richer than most people on the planet. It's difficult for you, for me, to enter the kingdom because we are rich beyond anything we can understand or imagine in terms of monetary things. But he goes on. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, they're amazed and he doubles down. He wants to drive home the point. Look how he starts. Children, how difficult it is. This should bring to mind Jesus' teaching last week. You want to enter the kingdom of God? Come like a child. Empty pockets, empty hands. Come with nothing to offer. A child knows that he is weak. A child knows that he is simple. A child knows that he is needy. A child has no, no problem asking for help. children he addresses them i think fully with this in mind remember what i just told you a few moments ago be like a child how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of god then he says one of his most famous sayings it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god how difficult is it? That difficult. This is shocking, but also kind of funny. I can't see this without seeing like a, like a Bugs Bunny cartoon just trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle. This is ridiculous, and it's meant to be. It's meant to be sobering. Wait, I know how big a camel is. I know how big an eye of a needle is. Jesus, you can't be serious. You can hear just the, the silence that was in this room a second ago. I can imagine the silence from the disciples. Because their response, the, 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 the verbs in Greek just keep being escalated here. And they were exceedingly astonished. They were amazed a moment ago. Verse 26, now they're exceedingly astonished. This word in the Greek means to be driven out of your senses in shock. You go crazy. Because this does not compute in your brain. To be driven out of your senses in shock. They're exceedingly astonished. 
and they respond the only way they know how. Who then can be saved? If that's the standard, who then can be saved? They're finally getting it. It is finally penetrating their thick skulls, and I hope it penetrates your thick skull. Who then can be saved? Salvation, eternal life, entrance into the kingdom of God is not a light thing. How is there hope for anyone? How could anyone be saved? And Jesus' answer emasculates their man-centered theology. All puns intended, take that however you want. Jesus' response emasculates their man-centered theology. What does he say? And he looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. One of the things that you may miss as you're reading through this, Jesus does a lot of looking. The, the looking in verse 21 is an intense looking. It's not just glancing at him. He sizes him up. He studies him. He knows him. He, he stares directly at him. The same word is used here. Jesus looked at them. He is sizing them up. He is looking intently at them. With man it is impossible, but not with God. This is the point. Lesson number three. With man, salvation is impossible. Notice, they rightly connect eternal life, entrance in the kingdom of God, and salvation, as they should be. Jesus tells them, with man, it, salvation, is impossible. In your own strength, by your own good deeds, you might as well try to shove a camel through the eye of a needle because it's impossible. You might as well try to build your own tower and try to reach the heights of heaven to reach God yourself. I think someone tried that once. It didn't turn out too well. Same idea. There is no hope, no salvation in man. And any gospel that exalts the, the efforts of man is a false gospel. Any person who exalts their own efforts does not understand the gospel. And this is at the heart of the Reformation. This is at the heart of the attack upon institutionalized, man-centered religion. Because unless you understand that it is only through the work of Christ, only by the grace of God, only by faith, only to the glory of God, and it's the Scriptures that tell us these things. You don't understand the Gospel. You don't understand the good news. With man, it is impossible. And anything you try to bring to the table amounts to nothing. Nothing plus nothing still equals nothing. This is why we hold those Reformation principles so closely, because it reminds us it is nothing of our own effort. It is nothing of our own goodness. With us, it is impossible. Salvation is the work of God alone, the Almighty God. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. Nothing. But with Him, all things are possible. Don't forget the second half of that. We must understand our depravity and His sovereignty. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. People love to quote this. Usually when it means they want to do whatever they want to do. But Jesus quotes this. All things are possible with God. He uses the same exact phrase in chapter 14. I want you to look at that. Because it's very telling. Chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus, in the garden, before going to the cross, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
For those who are tempted to say, all things are possible with God, and God loves me, so I can climb Mount Everest, or I can do whatever I want to do. Jesus prayed the same prayer. Was it possible for the Father to remove the the cup? Absolutely. But if the Father removed the cup, what was totally possible for him, we would have no life in the Son. All things are possible with God, but what God does is for our good. Jesus took that cup. The Son took the cup from the Father that He might take on our sin. That we might take on His righteousness. That He might be our atonement. That He might stand in our place. He took on our cup. So that it was impossible for man is now possible with God. That phrase is so much more powerful if you're not selfish. If you see that as the work of God for sinful man who is incapable on his own, then it is amazing. Amen. It's impossible with man. Jesus, in his humanity, and his submission to the Father, said, yet not what I will, but what you will. Remember that. It is good to go to our Heavenly Father with our requests. It is good to ask for good things. But know that He is sovereign and you are not. And you must be con- Amen. And you must be confident in Him enough to say, yet not what I will, but what you will. Because you know what's good for me. You know what is good for eternity because only you are good. And you cannot separate what is good only coming from God and our own wickedness. Peter responds. I love to see Peter's progression because we've had a lot of laughs at Peter's expense in the first 10 chapters of this book. We're not quite done yet, but he's getting better because Peter, as the spokesman, he began to say, I mean, he was kind of opening into a dialogue. See, We have left everything and followed you. Peter rightly applies the interaction with Jesus and the rich young ruler to the disciples. He rightly sees the words of Christ are to be learned and applied to my life. He tells Jesus, we have counted the cost. We have considered everything we have worthless and followed you. Remember what Peter and his brother And his friends did. They saw Jesus. He said, come and follow me. They left their nets. They left the boat. They left their livelihood. They left their family and went and followed him. See, we have left everything for you. That's tough for us. Because as you think about that in this moment, it should come to mind what has a hold on your heart. It should come to mind what is hard for you to let go of. It should come to mind what is a chain around your ankle that has you tied to something that is not life-giving, that is not eternal, you cannot take with you, and that wants your heart. I have left everything for you. We have left everything for you. I have a question for you. Is Jesus worth it? Is he really Have you counted the cost? Does all the other things sound good as long as I can have Jesus plus all my stuff or all my abilities or everything else I have to bring to the table? I want us to look at Luke 9. The end of Luke 9. Similar situation. Jesus is walking. He's traveling. People come up and ask Him questions. Each one of these should lead us to examination. Luke 9, verse 57. And they were going along the road, and someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you you will go. Sounds great. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
I'll follow you. Really? And sleep in the desert? I have nowhere to lay my head. I don't find my home anywhere here on earth. This is not where my identity and my comfort lies. Are you up for that? To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's insensitive, Jesus. What can a dead man offer you? What can a dead man add to you? You're standing in front of Jesus. Ah, but I got to go to this funeral first. It shows the heart. I, I'm going after dead things, but eternal life is standing right in front of me. He's saying, follow me. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I am not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Proclaim my kingdom. You want to follow me? Be about the work of my kingdom. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow. Who's the one who puts his hand to the plow? A worker. No one who goes back to their own work, to their own labor, who goes back to the, the, the drudgery of earthly work is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks about entering the kingdom of God, and it is difficult. As we see this, are you fit for the kingdom of God? Are there other things that have your heart that draw you away that you go after again and again? Do you have a list of excuses when Jesus says, follow me? Now, as Jesus responds here, I'm not going to get into this in depth because I'm going to save this for next week. But I want to read it. When Peter says, we have left everything and followed you, here's how Jesus responds. I want to read it slowly. I want you to listen and think about these words. And next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, a day where Maybe the one day a year the world thinks about the resurrection. We will talk about Jesus' own language on the resurrection. But we will also talk about the cost of following the resurrected one. And the reward. Listen to Jesus' words here. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For application, I want to just summarize our four lessons from today. Number one, do not trust in your own goodness. Only God is good. Number two, do not trust in riches because anything you trust in other than Christ will be taken from you. You either, give it, you, you either give it up freely or it is taken from you. Number three, do not trust in your own abilities. Salvation is impossible with man. Number four, only trust in Christ. Follow the Savior. Give it up. Because anything you give up for His sake, for the sake of the Gospel, pales in comparison to the eternal weight of glory and heavenly reward that is found in Christ with Him, unfading, imperishable for all time. I want to leave you with a practical 
exhortation and be on the screen from Philippians 4. Another one of those verses that people love to quote for their own selfish ambitions. But when you look at Philippians 4.13, look at the context. Picking up in, middle, in the middle of verse 11. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Contentment is a great fruit of finding your strength in Christ because He is more valuable than anything in this circumstantial world, whether great or little. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You did not take the cup from Jesus. You did not take the cup from Your own Son. That Your will was to crush Him for our iniquities. Your will was to bruise Him that we might be healed. Your will was to send Him that we might be saved. Your will that was that our wickedness would become His righteousness. That we might be reconciled to You. Lord, help us to leave it all behind. Root out anything in our hearts that we love more than You. Anything in our hearts that tethers us to this flesh, to this world. That we might consider heavenly riches. That we might enter your kingdom unhindered, unshackled. That we might see eternity with you as worth any cost. We love you. We praise you. You are a great and awesome God who has sent your Son for our sins. Gave us your Spirit as a seal and confirmation of His work to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.